Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 149 for the week ending April 12, 2019, the White Privilege Edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the Varsity Blues scandal, those who pled guilty, those who are now indicted with money laundering, and, of course, the issue of white privilege. We ask, does your company lack integrity? Citing a blog post by Mike Bolkoff. We look at Standard Charter joining the $1 billion fine club. We consider the intersection of due diligence and artificial intelligence and whether OFAC enforcement action demonstrates the need for pre-acquisition due diligence from the OFAC perspective. We consider what is ethical AI. Are there shifting reasons for FCPA enforcement? What are the risks for investors in Uber? We highlight my five-part podcast series this week on Shakespeare and compliance. This is Tom Fox. This week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors for This Week in FCPA, episode 149 for the week ending, April 12, 2019, the White Privilege Edition. After a week's hiatus, Jay and I are back. While debating white privilege and the varsity blues scandal, we also take a look at some of the other of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eye. So, Jay, uh, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Uh, as you said, it's been a real big week uh, on the Varsity Blues front. Uh, Felicity Huffman and 13 under others agreed to, pl- agreed to plead guilty. And then at the same time, there were more indult- indictments uh, released just now against the other high-profile uh, defendants in this case. I also had the opportunity to have an interview with uh, Jason Paperny at White Collar Advice. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more on today's show. Great. So, uh, well, that's a great lead-in, Jay, uh, because um, the week was really interesting. You, you correctly noted we started off with some guilty pleas, then we went to some superseding indictments. Uh, you did an interview that I'm really interested to to go into perhaps later in the show. And then, um, frankly, one of the best and fullest explanations was penned by a lady named Caitlin Flanagan in an article in the online journal uh, The Atlantic. But maybe we could start with just the criminal elements. Um, we did have 13 guilty pleas, and then we had some superseding indictments. Were you able to discern anything about why or how they got a, a group to plead guilty, and what happened to the group, or why didn't the second group plead guilty? Uh, well, the second group ended up, I guess they were a day late and a dollar short, and 
with in addition to the regular indictments that they have, they are also charged with money laundering. So um, sometimes in these matters, it's the the first people to uh, accept their guilty plea. They get preferential treatment. And I think um, now what's going to happen to this second group is they're going to be into a world of hurt. And uh, it seems that prosecutors were lying in wait with this, and they maybe just uh, got a little bit too cute or waited a little bit too long. But I think the stakes rise exponentially for the second group. I I couldn't agree with you more. And here's the question I've really been wanting to ask, Jay, is – uh, like, for instance, Felicity Huffman, one of the biggest names that was uh, uh, ensnared in this case, she she made a five thousand dollars, excuse me, a fifteen thousand dollar payment to have her daughter's test scores changed. But they had people that were paying up to five hundred thousand and even more uh, to for the full program to get their uh, kids into college. And so, when you gave, if you gave that much money, uh, the one of the scams was it was paid to a nonprofit organization. And then that nonprofit would distribute the money out as bribe payments. Uh, I wonder if anybody took a tax deduction for a payment to a nonprofit, uh, because that would be tax fraud. So in addition to the money laundering, Dick Casson had a, a fabulous article about the second component on the money laundering today that uh, uh, we'll link to uh, in the show notes. But uh, you're absolutely right. The um, This is a case is, uh, uh, well, we just have to maybe talk about it a little bit later at the end of the show Um, because Mike Volkoff had a great little post and it was entitled five signs your company lacks integrity. And those five signs are lack of gatekeeper authority and practice or uh, policies and procedures, your cultural language as a feel good strategy, rationalization of misconduct implications, lack or reduced commitment to compliance and ethics, and then singular obsession with quarterly financial results and financial targets. So um, I, I enjoyed that because it gave you a quick way, I thought, Jay, to, to look at some potential problems uh, that your organization might have. But also, it, it laid it out in such general terms that this may be something that the regulators would use uh, really as well as a benchmark. Yeah, it's uh, it's really powerful stuff. Mike uh, usually is, is very economical with his writing, and he gets to the heart of the matter. So if you're not doing looking for these five things in your organization, it's something for you to start doing. Uh, next up, we've got another article in Banks Behaving Badly. <laughs> and this bank is another European bank. We're talking about Standard Charter, and they're joining the $1 billion fine club. We have a story from the New York Times by Emily Flitter. And um, the basics are uh, $1.1 billion to settle allegations with both the United States and Britain regulators, authorities in the U.S., including the Treasury and the Department of Justice, as well as New York State regulators and prosecutors, said that Standard Chartered had for years processed hundreds of millions of dollars in transactions from countries barred from participating in the American financial system. Those companies, which you probably know by heart, are Cuba, Iran, Sudan, and Syria. And uh, this goes back to activity that went from 2009 to 2014. 
they are not the first European bank to be in this situation. In 2014, French bank BNP Paribas paid a record sum of nearly $9 billion and pleaded guilty for violating American sanctions against Sudan. And two years ago, Deutsche Bank was fined $630 million for helping Russian investors secretly move $10 billion through branches in London, Moscow, and New York. So uh, this is something that uh, is interesting that uh, Wee Chen, who used to work at Standard Charters, uh, she was the first person that I saw uh, do a post on this for LinkedIn. So uh, normally, if you were talking, I would be yelling out my recidivist, and that's what we got here. Uh, what about uh, what does John Rush have to say about this and dipping through the geometries? Well, John is uh, actually I had the chance to interview John for a podcast this week. So I finally got uh, he'll be on the podcast in a couple of weeks, not on this topic, uh, although on money laundering. And uh, John, um, this is his wheelhouse. So uh, whenever he writes on uh, money laundering or OFAC violations, you really need to, to read up and listen. But he, he have a great summary. Talked about the DOJ with a $250 million forfeiture and $480 million fine. Payment to the New York Attorney, New York County District Attorney's Office, and the other settlements that um, Standard Chartered engaged in. Talked about the uh, indictment of the uh, former associate uh, Mahum Mahumud Reza Elicia Mahmoud, excuse me, and uh, hopefully he will be uh, indicted. Excuse me, uh, extradited to the United States. To stand trial, he talked about the DPA, and it's uh, uh, actually it's he contrasted it with Societe Generale and how Standard Charter, although they had a much higher fine, uh, they actually cooperated much more uh, closely with the Department of Justice. So as always, uh, when it comes to the legal analysis of uh, AML, uh, OFAC, and and even FCPA, uh, I think John is the most level-headed, non-polemic. Uh, lawyer doing the legal analysis in the FCPA space, and, and I would commend uh, both uh, the articles we cite to in the show notes for everyone to read. Great. So next up, we have a story from Merritt Smith that ran in the FCPA blog, and it's entitled The Truth About AI and Due Diligence. And uh, this one reminded me a little bit of my past life working at Merrill Brink, and um, Merritt goes in to talk about some of the uh, key advances that I guess they're getting a little bit better in terms of technology, but they're still not perfect. Uh, first of all is OCR, which uh, is an acronym for Optical Character Recognition. This is when if you, say, scan a bill in through your software and the uh, character uh, recognition software can look at the amount and decide how much you spent on lunch and where you ate at. The second one is called uh, Natural Language Processing. And this is some of the technology that translation uses, like Google Translate. And the last one is using these technology together for a quantitative risk assessment. And, um, you know, there are significant hurdles to overcome before machine yearning, excuse me, learning can yield the sort of insight about bribery and risk. Uh, another issue regards inter interpretability and fairness, and sometimes AI has become so impossible that it really can't figure out the uh, 
small little effects that uh, happens when human lives and livelihoods are at play. And uh, finally, they, he says that we should uh, let this sort of danger serve as a reminder that while machine learning in its current state is well suited for discrete problems that can be narrowly defined, it is unfortunately as of yet not the complete solution uh, for the broad uh, scope of societal ills. So that's a real good, uh, another short article to give you some ideas about. We are always talking about AI, but there are still some limits, limits to its uh, uh, usefulness, and always we still need to keep the human element involved. Um, next up, we've got an article from um, Paul Weiss Law Firm talking about uh, OFAC enforcement against the U.S. parent company for its recently acquired Chinese subsidiaries, Iran sanction violations. And this article reminds me a lot about things that we've spoken about in the past when we talk about successor liability and what kind of due diligence you need to do when you acquire a company. Um, we definitely link to it in the show notes. And what's very interesting is that uh, they look at a couple different situations. The one here that we're looking at here is um, basically for Stanley Black & Decker, the company that makes small uh, machinery, vacuum cleaners, those type of things. And basically they acquired um, a company that was a, a Chinese subsidiary. And they not only look back retrospectively on um, where they may have had red flags, but they looked at it uh, going forward, too, after the acquisition, and they really didn't uh, do what they needed to do. And um, they compared and contrasted it with a settlement that went along to another company called Cole Morgan Corporation, which was a German company. And the German company uh, really hewed to uh, what they needed to do. They got a much smaller fine. But what is also interesting is that it looks like the uh, Trump administration, this is the first um, of what could pretend to be other OFAC violations that they're going to prosecute. Anything else you took from it, Tom? No, I mean, it really was starting with your uh, opening point, Jay, which is, uh, we've seen this uh, in the anti-corruption uh, arena in FCPA enforcement, um, although starting uh, really in 2012 with the safe harbor articulated in the 2012 guidance, less and less, because companies got the message, uh, do pre-acquisition due diligence. And uh, because remember, after you acquire them and after you close, it's not them that are engaging in the violation. It's you that are engaging in the violation. So um, still a good message, and it also drives on the point that you really need to understand who and what you're buying, because if they have business operations in China, you've got to scrub those. And if you can't scrub them pre-acquisition, you've got to do so immediately after uh, the acquisition. So um, a good message, uh, but also bearing uh, on the OFAC or trade control or trade sanction side of things, so everyone... Uh, should uh, have that in mind when they do their pre-acquisition due diligence. Exactly. So uh, we've got uh, our second AI article of the day, and this comes to us from Analyst Syndicate by Tom Austin. And uh, what are the seven technology ethics rules that need to be used? So, Jay, um, we've now had a couple of articles from the Analyst Syndicate, and this is a group of basically ex-Gartner folks who have gotten together 
and they write on some really interesting topics. It's not precisely on compliance, but it's tangentially uh, related enough that's something that you need to consider, and that's why uh, we're linking to it. It's just got some great stuff. Um, and this article is Tom Austin, and we probably should have paired this uh, with uh, Merritt Smith's article, but Tom really lays out some uh, ethics rules to consider around technology, and this should be used by anyone utilizing technology. And I, I just thought that was so powerful uh, that I wanted to run through them quickly. Number one, apply these rules to all systems. So that ties directly into not only transparency in a compliance program, but consistency. Uh, force uh, practical ethics issues into public visibility, because always remember, sunshine is the greatest disinfectant. Number three, uh, use the full range of approaches to deal with biases. Uh, even machine learning is going to have biases, the biases of the person who created the, um, the underlying code, so that it has to be considered. Uh, number four, employees at all levels have rights and responsibilities. That means from the boardroom to the shop floor. Number five, treat multi-use technologies fairly. Um, certainly facial recognition can improve safety while reducing security barriers, but it can be used for other unethical purposes. So how are you going to deal with that? Government cooperation, a business can choose to do, a, a company can choose to do the business with the government or choose not to. And we've certainly seen that uh, recently from Microsoft, Google, and other companies whose employees have really objected to that. And then finally, and this is uh, not only uh, the, the ultimate message, but frankly, it's a message that affiliated monitors really speaks to quite a bit. Uh, your colleagues, Jay, culture counts. Having values and ethics is great, but they only mean something if they're adhered to uh, when it seems to go against the direct interest of the organization. So if your culture is an ethical culture, if your culture is one of sunshine and transparency, if your culture is one of consistency in the way you treat people and different programs, uh, that's going to help you uh, going forward. So uh, I really uh, thought this was a great article, and I think uh, everyone should uh, consider these, uh, particularly in the compliance space, because companies are going to uh, internally look at their compliance to make sure uh, that they're doing it better than uh, really any other part of the company. Good stuff. Uh, next up, this is a real interesting article. I think this is one of my favorite ones of the bunch this week, and it comes to us uh, from Kevin Keller on the Global Anti-Corruption blog. And um, last November, Jeff Sessions announced the creation of a new Department of Justice China initiative the main focus of this was not corruption, but rather the theft of intellectual property by Chinese corporations, as was detailed in a 200-page report published by the Office of U.S. Trade Representatives in March in 2008. And they basically want to identify Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, FCPA cases, involving Chinese companies that compete with American businesses. So uh, from this an initial statement, um, it appears that they are using uh, FCPA matters as basically a tool to go after Chinese companies and just Chinese companies who are competing with American businesses. And the first thing they're looking at is IP. Now, this is really um, this is really different than the way uh, the 
statue. It was initially described when it came out in 1977. And basically, uh, the Congress at the time when this was passed said that the FCPA was there to protect businesses that play fair and to promote good business practices. Then uh, this changed focus 20 years later in the 90s when they started to really enforce the FCPA again. And then at that point, they said the primary policy goal was to re, uh, improve relations with foreign countries and to work together to um, prosecute uh, anti uh, to prosecute corruption. So we've gone through something that was, first of all, number one, to um, – you know, smooth out the uh, business climate and to re-engage and have a spirit of fair play with our global trading partners. And then now we looked at something where we're trying to uh, have a range of working together against anti-corruption. And now this is using being used as a very uh, blunt tool against uh, our business, uh, I guess, a uh, little bit of uh, – situation now with China, where we are trying to call the Chinese and uh, get them to play fair in terms of international trade. So I think it's a real interesting article. And uh, although it's very succinct, it calls together and takes a look at what's happened in terms of foreign corruption enforcement over the last four years. Good stuff, Jay. So we had a... Um Really interesting article that we linked to, Jay, in uh, the Financial Times uh, that talked about Uber. And I think in terms of investments or rather uh, people um, investing and the going public, obviously everyone has their eye on Uber. Lyft has gone public. Um, And one of the things that uh, is going to be most interesting is Uber has to – uh, disclose um, enough information about uh, pending lawsuits, government investigations, issues dating back to its prior CEO, Travis Kalanick, his hard-charging ways, and the way the company conducted business uh, previously. And given the previous CEO and the history, there are going to be more risk factors. Are those going to be enough to drive down the value of Uber or um, in the um, case of Lyft, at least at the initial offering, uh, none of those factors really mattered. So a lot of legal baggage on the road to the IPO. It's going to be interesting to see what Uber discloses. Uh, will those disclosures uh, be robust enough or will they uh, scare uh, any investors away, Jay? So is there a way to, um, I guess, in your opinion, which do you think are the greatest risks here? Because it's a... It's a whole potpourri of legal actions, but what do you think are the ones that could be the most damaging to uh, getting the valuation that they want? Well, um, that really could be hard to say. I suppose uh, the biggest valuation would be some sort of um, change in the employment status of the Uber drivers uh, in uh, in either – literally across the United States or in Europe. Um, If uh, that happens and the low-cost model somehow changes, that could dramatically uh, impact Uber's ability to make money um, just as an ongoing business concern. Um, The sexist and toxic work environments, uh, 
believe they're trying, I know they're trying to change these, and I think they are changing these. The um, long-term play of a driverless car or automated car, I think uh, it's going to be difficult in view of the lawsuit they had to settle with Alphabet's uh, Waymo. And then the um, ongoing HR issues and internal employee issues, I think, are going to be less significant. But really anything that would, I think, strike directly into the way either is doing business or the way it hopes to do business going forward. Yeah, I, I think if they had their druthers, they wouldn't want any of those things on their uh, on their uh, public uh, record. But it is there. Um, Tom, we are now to the part of the podcast where we talk about your uh, week long um, podcast series. What did you talk about this week? So, Jay, I had a lot of fun this week because um, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I uh, went to New York to see Glenda Jackson and King Lear, and it was a very different, unique. Uh, uh, interpretation of the king, obviously starting with a woman as King Lear, but it was different in staging. It was different. It had music in it. It was different because uh, one one woman played the role of uh, both uh, Cordelia and uh, the Fool. Uh, we had um, uh, lighting that was unique. So it was a very different staging. It was a very different interpretation. And I used the differences in this production of King Lear to talk about five different parts of your compliance program. So in part one, I looked at innovation and compliance. Part two, changing your focus. Uh, Part three, engaging your audience. Part four, how do you uh, have a different interpretation around compliance? And then five, uh, the fool. Uh, so lots. Uh, it was certainly fun for me. I hope everybody enjoyed it. As uh, most people know, I'm a huge Shakespeare fan, so I loved uh, really taking a deep dive into one play. I, I do an ongoing series on Shakespeare and compliance uh, as well. So Jay, I wanted to to leave a little bit of time, and I think we have to to really have some some further thoughts on the uh, Varsity Blues case, and and I'd really like to start with. Uh, your interview of uh, Justin Paperney on um, that you posted this week on LinkedIn, and really, what was the genesis of your visiting with him, and what were your takeaways from that article? Sure. Uh, so I first learned of Justin about three weeks ago, uh, and this was just around the time that the whole Varsity Blue scandal hit, and he was on our local radio station, uh, the NPR station here, KCRW. And he started to talk about his background and how he got into uh, forming his company and his consultancy. And uh, basically, basically, Justin was fired from UBS Financial Services in January of 2005 for his role in aiding and abetting a client's fraud. And uh, rather than accept responsibility for his actions, he lived in denial. He lied to his lawyers. He lied to the FBI. And as a result of those bad choices, uh, he made matters even worse. And he was finally sentenced to 18 months in, pres- in federal prison. And he surrendered to Taft Federal Prison Camp in 2008. And when he was on the inside, he started making relationships with other uh, detainees or convicts, I guess. And he started to wonder you know, why he wasn't accountable and why did he make the decisions that he made? And he wanted to start trying to do something 
that uh, would be helpful to other people who might be in similar circumstances. So he ended up forming um, a business partnership with a gentleman named Michael Santos, who had been inside for more than 22 years, and they formed a friendship. And this, uh, he began to mentor Justin, and this is what led to Justin forming his consultancy. So um, it's really, um, he takes a look at this fact that, you know, there are people who don't know what's going to happen once they go into incarceration. And, you know, there's so much that's played up in entertainment is, you know, you've got to be tough and you've got to have a shiv. And those are something that will never happen in a minimum security uh, facility. So Justin really lays out uh what can be expected? And if people are going into incarceration, how do they deal with their family and their children? And how do they still run their businesses? So I think it's pretty fascinating that he has a consultancy like this. And it makes sense why he's in the news right now. Uh, and then I think, you know, Tom, how would you kind of compare and contrast Justin's story with the story that we have from The Atlantic? So Caitlin Flanagan was a former high school guidance counselor, and she really um, laid out and frankly laid into the uh, – she was in Los Angeles at a, a private high school in Los Angeles, and the parents who would come in front of her basically demanding that their children get into the college of their choice. And she really laid out the underlying theoretical basis, unfortunately, for white privilege – uh, this is not priv white privilege above uh, other races. This is just pure, unadulterated, I'm rich, I'm white, I should get what I want. And uh, it came from some very successful uh, people, uh, lawyers, engineers, tech, uh, Silicon Valley, you name it, uh, not only in Los Angeles, but in other places like Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, and other uh, similar enclaves of rich white privilege. But what I wanted to really focus on, in addition to her laying out that theory, was there were three flaws that she identified in the college admission process that were uh, exploited by the company that uh, received the money to use as bribe payments. And I thought that was really interesting, interesting that she... Uh, delineated three structural flaws. So first was sports. Now, when I think of flaws in sports, I think of the NCAA and uh, uh, employees, college students not being paid for uh, their, their worth, you know, Zion Williamson, all of that. But she's not talking about that type of sports, that type of exploitation. This is using sports as a lever to get rich kids rich white kids into school. So water polo, tennis, gymnastics, volleyball, sailing, uh, polo, um, field insult, hockey, field hockey, shooting, um, uh, lacrosse, uh, lacrosse, um, things like that, uh, was a mechanism by which many colleges, uh, many, uh, students were admitted into college. The second flaw was the way testing was reported to colleges. Jay, when you and I uh, took uh, the SAT, uh, I took the SAT, not the ACT, um, extended time testing was uh, given to st students with learning disabilities, uh, providing they were diagnosed by a professional. 
However, there was an asterisk noted uh, next to the extended time scores, alerting the college that the student had taken the test without the usual time limit. However, in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, this was found to violate the American with Disabilities Act because it allegedly discriminated against those disabled uh, persons by identifying them specifically. So the testing companies dropped it. And this made it possible for anyone with enough money to get a diagnosis uh, could have their uh, children have up to two days instead of four hours to take the SAT. Uh, finally, and this is the most uh, interesting and perhaps most applicable for the compliance professional. That no one person or no one entity or no one department at it anywhere had um, visibility over the entire process. So there was no oversight. Uh, uh, so when it came to things like essays, um, children are obviously uh, – uh, have to turn in essays, but these could be um, uh, doctored and written by others. So you have uh, transcripts, test scores, and te teacher recommendations that are never part of the children's hands. And when it gets on the university side, uh, you had admissions counselors who are not looking at those who came in through sports uh, programs who were allegedly given scholarships or even admitted on a sports program. So there was a huge lack of oversight to what uh, Flanagan called broken saloon doors. Um, so you had uh, <clears throat> powers conferred on coaches, extended time testing, and the ease with which applications could be crammed with false information. And then you had businesses pop up uh, to exploit this. So um, a real structural problem for universities and um an interesting way for the compliance practitioner to think about how could problems come up in your organization simply because you don't have oversight over all of the components. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's just going to be more to come from here. And uh, unfortunately, I guess in the middle of the week, we don't have this as part of this, but my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, it was discovered that a former basketball player who was the coach of Penn also accepted bribes. And it was a situation where he was working with the uh, son of um, a man who paid the bribes who wanted to get his son considered to be on the Penn basketball team. So uh, unfortunately, I think there's more and more uh, – uh, dominoes that are going to fall and uh, higher education is really going to be under the spotlight now to figure out how can they come in put some proper controls on this process so once again there will be a meritocracy i think the other thing that's interesting in caitlin's article is she makes a direct comparison between uh, those people who uh, kind of believe in the president's reasoning that they no longer have their jobs and they no longer have their place in an American society. And she sets up a syllogism here with these rich, entitled white folks who are worried about the, uh, the slots in universities slipping away and their kids don't have the same opportunity e either. So it's uh, two distinct populations on uh, opposite sides of the ideological uh, divide who both seem to be feeling that a part of their American birthright is slipping away. 
So, Jay, um, before you take us home, uh, we actually have some breaking news. Uh, it just popped up uh, on my notice board that Uber has disclosed an FCPA investigation. Uh, as reported by Harry Casson over at the FCPA blog, Uber said that it is being investigated for potential FCPA violations, having received requests from the Department of Justice back in May 2017 for potential improper payments in Malaysia, China, and India. Uh, the investigation is ongoing, and the Uber says it's cooperating with the the uh, Department of Justice. Of course, no word about a potential fine, potential uh, uh, resolution, or potential monitor. But uh, that could be something uh, something that could certainly impact Uber, particularly uh, with the state of their uh, compliance program going forward. Yeah. All right. Well, it's always fun to, to break something on a Thursday night when we're recording a day early. Um, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in the FCPA, episode 149 for the week ending April 12th, the White Privilege Edition. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I'm at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA, and I hope you enjoyed Pamela Ferrist Walsh, who joined us today. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.